All right, well, if you have your Bibles, if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Um, we continue to go through this book. Luke is a very detailed man. And so, I've heard it said, I've never actually counted for myself, but I've heard it said that if you combine Luke and Acts, it actually comprises the largest section of the New Testament. Because both Luke and Acts are very detailed and very long in a good way. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 20. And I have in my notes 21 to 26 for the first point, but um, I'm going to go back to verse 19 on the advice of my father. And we'll begin reading um, there. Oh, yes. And the chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Again, this parable is the one where he talks about the landowner, the vineyard owner, and he finally sends them his son, and his son is killed, because the people that are tending the vineyard, that are responsible to manage this master's wealth want to keep it for themselves. So they perceived that the parable was against them. And they watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, that they may take hold of his word, so that they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that, uh, we know that thou sayest and teachest Rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teaches the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar, or no? But he perceived their craftiness, and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny whose image and superscription hath it. Show me a penny whose image and subscription hath it. They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. I can't help but think, and as we look at this, this uh, message today, I titled it simply, Jesus Continues to Share His Wisdom. And none of these people, even though they were supposed to be wise in the things of the Lord, even though these religious leaders had made a study of the Old Testament, none of them had wisdom that rivaled the wisdom of Jesus. And yet, God says to us, who are believers, as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 99, I am wiser than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. So you want to be wise? Make the testimonies of the Lord your meditation. Um, and that is true wisdom. Wisdom is what I would do if I saw life from God's point of view. And the reason that they couldn't refute Jesus was that's the point of view that he had. 
he's, he's probably thinking in his mind, even though he wasn't saying the words, I created you, nothing you say is going to trump what I say. And we see this passage, and this passage specifically speaks to me because I run into a lot of people who, who say that the gospel is all that matters. And trust me, I believe in the gospel. I believe in the power of the gospel. I believe it's the most important thing, and I believe we should always be about preaching it. But we also have a responsibility to live in the society where God has placed us and to pay attention to the things that are around us. Even though his primary goal was to preach the gospel, why did John the Baptist go to prison? Because he said to the king, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That didn't have anything, I mean, it had to do with the gospel, but it was not directly in accordance with, with his preaching the gospel. He saw something wrong in his society with his king, and he spoke up against it. So I believe that God wants us to put the gospel first, but that as we are engaging in our society, and as we are holding forth public positions on matters of the day, it will allow people to give to have a who have a question and say, "Why do you believe this way?" For me to then say, "It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ." Why do I believe that the killing of almost sixty million unborn babies is wrong? Because God said in Jeremiah chapter one verse five, "Before I formed you in the womb." I knew you. And the psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb, and that my soul knows right well. Even the founding fathers, we just celebrated Independence Day. The founding fathers said this in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And then they proceeded to say, that the greatest rights of our society were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And where does life and liberty come from? It comes from God. God said, I have set before you this day life and death. Choose life that thou and thy descendants may live. And so Jesus never disparaged Caesar's position. Remember, he didn't really ever speak directly against Caesar. He spoke against the religious leaders and said, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. They, they, they came up with this lie that he went against Caesar, but he never told them to go against Caesar. That's humbling to me because Caesar was a dictator. He was a godless, ruthless man, and yet... Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. And it says in verse 26, And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer, and held their peace. There's another passage where they sent people to arrest Jesus, and the people came back empty-handed. And when the leaders asked him, why did you take him? 
They didn't say he was stronger than us physically. What did they say? They said, no man spoke like this man. Why did he speak with such authority? Because the very voice that was speaking these truths, the very voice that said, render unto God the things that are God, and to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, that voice was the one that created the world. That voice was the one that created Caesar. And so, his wisdom shined forth and they couldn't take him. But these religious leaders, they didn't give up easily. So next we're going to look at um, this next section here. And that is Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 33. First I want to read you a quote by William Wilberforce. He's one of my favorite people when I talk about this issue of whether Christians should be involved in government. William Wilberforce was wrestling with whether he should preach the gospel or whether he should be involved in parliament. And someone challenged him, thank goodness, thank God, someone challenged him that he could, in fact, do both. And that by serving in parliament, he could still work for the furtherance of the gospel. I thank God that there are leaders in Washington today that believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank God for a vice president that believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that talks about a day in his life when his life was made new by the only thing that could make his life new, Jesus Christ. William Wilberforce said this, Surely the principles of Christianity, surely the principles of Christianity lead to action as well as meditation. My friends, I think there are too many people for whom meditation is the only thing it leads to. The meditation needs to lead to action. Jesus said this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your light shine. So my question to you is, is your light shining? So the second thing where Jesus is showing forth his wisdom, these Sadducees, they didn't believe there was a resurrection. I don't understand how you can live like that. There's plenty of people that do. They think they die and then nothing. I just don't understand it. Because as we read... The things that we have to look forward to as they come through in the book of Revelation are so exciting to the redeemed. But these people came to him, and it says, Then came to him certain Sadducees, certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection, and said to him, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take up his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her to wife and died childless, and the third also took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. 
Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And so, these Sadducees are putting forth this challenge, and of course, they don't believe in the resurrection. So, um, so they're, they're not really really truly seeking. There's a lot of people that claim to be seekers, but what does the Bible say about the seeking? True seeking. He says, if you seek, you will find. It's an imperative statement. It's a definite statement, a definitive statement. If you seek, you will find. So therefore, a lot of the people that are termed seekers in our world today are not really seeking, because if they were, they would find the truth. It's not if you seek, you may find. It's not if you seek, you might find. It's not if you seek and get lucky, you'll find. It's if you seek, you will find. And there have been plenty of stories of civilizations who were seeking after God, and then God sent a missionary to them and said, the God that you're seeking is Jesus Christ. I think of Cornelius, who did alms, who, re, who respected the children of Israel, who loved the Lord to the best of his ability. And then the angel came and said, Your alms have gone up before you. Behold, there is a man coming to you to show you the truth. And Cornelius welcomed Peter in. And Peter shared the gospel with him. And Cornelius believed. And several in his household also. And Peter saw the Holy Spirit come upon those Gentile believers. And he said, after he came back, he said, I believe God is no respecter of persons. And so, if we could look for some background on that, um, these verses with this challenge by the Sadducees, we could look at Ruth, Ruth 1, 11, and 12, just to give some cultural context to what these Sadducees are asking. Ruth 1, 11, and 12, if one of you gentlemen uh, arrives there, you can read it for us. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way. I am too old to have a husband. I should say I have hope. I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons. So we see that, and we can also see in, in the story of Judah and Tamar, that there was an expectation in the Jewish culture that this would indeed be the case. That if a man died without children, his brother could take her to wife and that the, the fruit of that union, at least the first 
child from that union would be a descendant. When Boaz took Ruth as his wife, Obed became the descendant of Elimelech's family. Obed was not Boaz's legal descendant. But Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, and he redeemed that line, and eventually that line led to Jesus the Messiah. And it's just, it's amazing to me the way God works. And how he, even in the Old Testament, was showing that salvation was going to be for all men. We were talking about Abraham earlier. And it said of Abraham, or God said to Abraham, because of you all nations of the world will be blessed. It's because of Abraham that I'm blessed today. It's because of his story that I have salvation through Jesus what an amazing thing. And so as we, we look at this, we may see, well, th this is a tricky question. But as with so many other times, God has the answer. And Jesus has prepared. And so as we look at this final section from verse 33 38, let's look at how Jesus responds to these Sadducees. Remember, the question was, therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead Neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live, Unto him. You see, marriage is a picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is a great gift to us as we live here on this earth. A gift that I am still hopeful to experience one day. But it is a gift for this earth. See, once we get to heaven, we will have one focus, and that will be the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who is preparing, even now, a place for us. And I love this phrase, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Remember what the angel said when the women came to the tomb. He said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. 
And one day, because he rose, because he was the first fruits of that resurrection, I will rise. And if you love him, you will rise as well. My body, my corruptible will put on incorruption. My mortal body will put on immortality. And I will no longer struggle with the sins or the physical frailties of the flesh. What a wonderful day that's going to be. That was Paul's focus, even through all of his trials. He talked about being shipwrecked and beaten with rods. and This whole list of things. But at the end of the day, he said that he was ready to go because he was aspiring to the crown of life which God had promised to him. And not to him only, but unto all them that love his appearing. So as I close today, I want to ask you, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? And are you experiencing it? You see, there is a, there is a future resurrection that will happen, but there's a resurrection that I've already experienced. And that was when the Holy Spirit called out to me when I was dead in my sins, while I was yet without strength, and said, Andrew, come alive. And I made a decision to follow him, and I was passed at that moment from death to life. The Bible says in, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, that I was sealed from the moment of my salvation with the promise of the Holy Spirit. It hasn't always been easy. Most of you know that for several years after I was saved, I, I fought with God, I made excuses, but God didn't leave me. And He said, Stop making excuses and let me live through you. Paul said it this way, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's the only way to live. It's the only way to live. Everything else is superficial. Temporary, not lasting. And you notice with each of these things that Jesus is dealing with, he just uses so much wisdom. He's basically saying, you know, marriage is only a picture of what's going to happen in the hereafter. You know, a lot of people today going back to that issue, say, well, Jesus never said anything specific about marriage, but in Matthew chapter 19, he says, have you not read that at the beginning, God made them male and female? And then he brought them together, and he said, they too shall be one flesh, and what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. So God did tell us, Jesus did tell us what marriage was for. Jesus did tell us 
the parameters of marriage, and he honored those parameters. He showed his regard for marriage by going to the marriage in Cana. It was the first time he publicly made his ministry known. It was at a marriage. I often wonder about the couple in the story, whether they looked back and said, Jesus, the Messiah, was at our marriage. I don't know. I won't know until I get to heaven if they're there, but how exciting would it have been for that to be the case? You know, this past week, our vice president was in Granville, walking the streets of the parade, shaking people's hands and People were really excited about that, and justifiably so. If my sister didn't have to be in a parade in San Lake, I probably would have wanted to go to Granville to greet him. But how exciting, how much more exciting is it that when, when I get to eternity, he's going to kneel before the same God that I kneel before. And he's going to declare with me that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not going to matter that he was vice president. Because we're both kings and priests to Almighty God. And there's nothing higher than that. And people don't understand that. The cross is foolishness to them to believe. He's been ridiculed by many for the stands he takes because he wants to keep his marriage sacred. But at the end of the day, he's going to win. Nothing men will do will ever take that away. Perhaps you're one of those people that doesn't believe in a resurrection. Maybe you think life ends here. But you know what? If, if, if just by chance you would be right, then the most you could say about me is that I've wasted my life. But if you neglect to hear the truth that there is a resurrection, that Jesus is coming back, and that he wants to take you with him, then you will have wasted your eternity. And which is worse? If you are a believer, I want to encourage you, like we said earlier, that the meditations of our faith should lead to action. People should know that we're followers of Christ. What was it said of Peter and John? One of my favorite phrases that it was said of them was that they heard them preach, knew that they were unlearned, and said, they marveled. Same word here. They marveled at Jesus' words. And they marveled at Peter and John's words because they were speaking the words of Jesus. And they knew that they had been with Jesus. That's my goal. Is that people would know that I've been with Jesus. And I pray that it would be yours as well. Remember, 
The Son of Man is not God of the dead, but God of the living. God didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He's done it in my life, and he can do it in yours as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for its promises. We thank you that you have an answer for every problem that we face. We thank you for the answers that you gave the religious leaders when they tried to trick you up. We thank you that there is no deceit found in your tongue, that you are perfect, that you lived a life we weren't capable of, but that you impute that righteousness to us when we trust you for salvation. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here that does not know you, that they would come to know you, that they would come to know what it means to have you as their substitutionary um, volunteer for their punishment. That you, who knew no sin, became a sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in you. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your many mercies. Thank you for loving us. And now I ask that you would make your face shine upon these people and that you would give them peace. And that we would go forth with one goal, and that is to love God, love others, and to never stop until our dying breath. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.